Okay, uh, here we go. Day number two, long time no see, right? It's kind of one of the fun things, you know, on your Sunday night, and then boom, Monday morning, and we're, we're hitting right into the next section of the Song of Songs. I'm really excited about opening up God's Word with you this morning. The topic that we're going to cover today, I, I don't see a lot of conversation about it, and I think that's a real shame. I think that the Church of Jesus Christ needs to be talking about beauty more, uh, not just from a oh, you know what, you need to have properly ordered affections, but, you know, what does God have to say about this? What does God have to say about my appearance? With the proliferation of social media and the exaltation of the image uh, in our culture, uh, we need to have a properly grounded theology of beauty, uh, of adornments. And the Song of Songs actually helps us do that. And uh, so this lesson today that we're going to work through, it's going to come from the Song of Songs, but there's a lot of preliminary stuff that I'm going to work through at the beginning. As we begin this morning, uh, I do want to just kind of tell you that I've worked through this material with a few different people. And generally, as I've gone through this material with people, at the beginning, they get a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, it can even kind of sting. It might even sting a little bit. And I would encourage you just to stick with me and to just follow along. Uh, this is God's word. It is true. And at the end, what they generally find is that it's very liberating. We have so bought into this world's philosophy of beauty and appearance, we don't even realize that it's happened. And uh, my wife has worked through this material with young ladies, and they have found it liberating. I've gone through it with young men, and it's helped them to properly order their affections and their desires so that they're looking more biblically at beauty. I've even talked to some husbands, and they have found it helpful to enjoy this good gift that God has given. So as we uh, begin, I do want to just start by reading through the section of God's Word that we're going to work through. Oop, I forgot to clear this out from Bible study this morning. Let me wipe this out real quick. Okay, so we're going to pick it up right here at verse 5. We're going to read God's Word, then we're going to pray uh, for His will to be done through this uh, lesson and through His Word, and then we're going to dive in. So, Song of Songs, chapter 1, in verse 5. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where, do you, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels." We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time that we can talk about uh, this topic of beauty. I pray, Lord, that as we look at your word, that we would see how these ancient words truly apply to our lives. You are the God of creation. You made the world a specific way. You have ordered even our bodies a specific way. Even in this fallen state, you have ordained that beauty remains. Help us to understand what beauty is and what it is not. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Beauty, what is it and why do I care? First, we're going to talk about a definition of beauty, and most of this is going to come from other passages of Scripture. I'll even ask for a little bit of interaction as we work through it, uh, but I want to kind of define what we're talking about when we're talking about beauty. First, I want to explain that we're talking about external beauty. External beauty concerns physical symmetry and order. The world understands this. In fact, you do too. Um, we all know that some people are more beautiful than others, and uh, that's just the way that it is. Um, and as we think through this external beauty and this physical symmetry and order, uh, the world has even done studies, and they say, you know what, this is the man's most beautiful, uh, the most beautiful man. This is the most beautiful woman, and they put these labels on it. And there are some objective characteristics to beauty. It's objective. Have you guys familiar with beauty is in the eye of the beholder? Okay, you've kind of heard of that terminology. I actually used to believe that beauty was in the eye of the beholder. And you know, my beautiful standard should be my wife. And if her beauty changes, then guess what else changes? My standard of beauty should change because she is my standard of beauty. And then I started studying the Song of Songs. And I was like, you know what, that's not working too well. And because, uh, you know what, and I started studying the Bible as a whole, I'm like, huh, this is kind of hard. And this is where this might kind of push back, and it might even hurt a little bit. But at the end, I do trust, trust me, it'll be, I think, liberating for you. It was really a tough journey for my wife, because <laughs> I was working through it all and trying to think through, what is this thing called beauty? But what does beauty concern? It concerns physical symmetry and order. So often when we talk about beauty, we're like, you know what, let's talk about this internal beauty. Well, what is internal beauty? It's building off of the meaning of the word, the physical meaning of the word. External order and symmetry, it's the internal ordering of the affections. Your desires are correctly ordered. And that's a good thing. And internal beauty, guess what? It's really important. In fact, what we're going to see is that it's most important. And that's where most of the conversation ends. People are like, you know what? External beauty, you know, it kind of fades away. Don't be really concerned about it, okay? What you really need to focus on is the beauty of your heart, the internal ordering of your heart so that your loves are properly ordered. You're exactly right. But guess what? There's this other thing that just keeps gnawing at us. What is it? External beauty. There's something there. What is it? Let's talk about it. So I'm not going to go away from 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4. This is definitely true. Peter is exactly right. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. Exactly right. Internal beauty is more important. With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Interesting, though, in 1 Peter 3, you know what word doesn't actually occur? The word beauty. It's not in the Greek. The word beauty is not actually there. You see, we've done something in English. We've taken something that's physical, beauty, and then we've metaphorized it. We've made it a metaphor to refer to something internal. 
But the Bible actually has a specific word that it uses that it talks about beauty. Does anybody know? Do you remember, based on your biblical knowledge, who does it say is beautiful in the Bible? Louder. Moses, it says that he was uh, a good-looking man. But the word beauty is actually not used of Moses, but it does make uh, some some uh, descriptions that he is a, a good-looking guy. Okay, anybody else? Sarah. Sarah, I heard Sarah. It says specifically that Sarah was a beautiful woman. In fact, Abraham was kind of a little concerned about that, and he made some decisions based upon her beauty, right? Okay, who else? I heard somebody else. Yeah. Satan and Lucifer. Okay, yeah, all right. Abigail was beautiful. Who else? Absalom. What was that? The feet of those who bring good news. Now, it's actually a different word for beauty there. There's one specific, and the word for like Lucifer is like the shining one. It doesn't use the word like beautiful beautiful there. Um, But the word for beauty, there's a specific word that's used in, in Hebrew, and it's used for Sarah. It's used for Rebecca. It's used for Absalom. It's used for Abigail. It's used for several different people throughout the Old Testament. These are biblical beauties. And guess what? They were beautiful. Most people, however, were not. <laughs> okay? All right, so I've got two illustrations here that I'm just going to put up on the slide. Abraham and the Egyptians recognize Sarah's beauty. This is important for us to recognize that beauty is not simply a cultural conditioned thing. There was beauty recognized by both Abraham. He's like, we're going to go to Egypt and your beauty is going to get me in trouble. Tell them you're my brother, okay? Or I'm your brother. Get that backwards. My bad. (laughs) And they get down there and the Egyptians recognize it. The narrator specifically states, Sarah is beautiful. Everybody is saying, you know, this woman is a beautiful woman. Furthermore, in Genesis 29, 17, the narrator, it's not Jacob's opinion. It's the narrator who states that Leah's eyes were weak. And there's some discussion on that word. What does that mean? Whatever it means doesn't matter. Rachel was the knockout, okay? She was the one that was beautiful. And then there are two descriptions of Rachel's beauty. She is beautiful in form and appearance. In form and appearance, Now, when we read that, she was beautiful in form and appearance, this is where our culture is kind of, our culture is really weird, by the way, okay? Our perception of beauty that our our culture has created is actually very different than, like, all of the cultures beforehand. (laughs) Um, But uh, anyway, she was beautiful in form, meaning that she had curves, okay? Do we understand that? In today's standard of beauty, not having curves is presumably a good appearance. It's insane what the beauty industry has done to our young ladies because they have idealized a kind of beauty that is unbiblical. God designed the woman a specific way. And the ancient culture recognized the value of the curves. and This was considered beautiful in the ancient day. Let you just think about that one for a little bit, okay? So, uh, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in both form and appearance. She was the real knockout. The point that I'm trying to establish here is that some people are more beautiful than others. You know that already. 
But beauty is not necessarily in the eyes of the beholder. In fact, as we look at the scriptures, we learn several truths about beauty, and some of these might hurt, particularly this next one. But again, just stick with me. The first uh, definition of beauty that we see in the scriptures is that beauty is flawless. Beauty is flawless. When we study through this idea of beauty, we see it in the Song of Songs and we see it outside of the Song of Songs. I'm going to jump over to the scriptures and we're going to go over to Song of Songs chapter 4. In Song of Songs chapter 4, we have our word beauty. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. See that? We have this repetition of beauty. She is a knockout. Okay, and then... At the end in verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 7, you are altogether beautiful, my love. Do you see the repetition there in verse 7? See, she's beautiful at the beginning. She's beautiful at the end. But the, the, the male lover in the Song of Songs, he doesn't just say, you're beautiful. He explains how she's beautiful. And he works through that in verses 2 through 6. And the one culminating description is that there is no flaw in you. We see this description of beauty in uh, outside of uh, the Song of Songs as well. In Song 4-7, we do have, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. One of you mentioned Absalom. In 2 Samuel 14.25, Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome, that's our beauty word by the way, because we don't call guys beautiful, <laughs> we call them handsome, for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no flaw. There was no blemish in him. Same word. There was no flaw in him. As we look at the Old Testament uh, Levitical code and the sacrifices that uh, were brought to the, the priest as they offered a sacrifice, what was the description, required description of the animal that was brought? What was it? It was flawless. And furthermore, the priesthood, to be able to function as a priest, you had to be, well, you couldn't have any major flaws. Major blemishes disqualified individuals from the priesthood, and the blemished animal could not be sacrificed to the Lord. Now, I recognize that I'm talking to a bunch of blemished people, (laughs) and this is where some of this might hurt. But this is where I want to just remind you of people like Daniel, whom God used in a great, great way. But Daniel was never qualified to function as a priest because of what the Babylonians very likely what the Babylonians did to him. He would have never qualified because he had a blemish like this. Furthermore, as we think through John chapter 9 and the man that was born blind, Jesus teaches us about these major flaws and how God in his divine providence allows major flaws to materialize in people. Why? For his glory. So as we talk about this sensitive topic, I want you to consider any flaws that you might have. Well, a divine, providential, sovereign God has allowed those to come into your life for a reason. Glorify God through those flaws. You don't be a victim of them. And as we think through beauty and as we define it as flawless, there's another description that we see of beauty, and we can define it based on Proverbs 31. And that beauty is 
young. And as I look out amongst an audience, and we have some younger faces here, okay, as you think through, oh, you know what? You're young. You're in the prime of your youth. You have your youthful beauty. And what's going to happen to that? It's going to pass away. And as I look out across this audience, and I see several older faces, where that beauty has wrinkled and faded. I'm not saying that you're ugly. Nobody is ugly. Every person is made in the image of God and reflects his beauty, and you have beauty. But as far as this gradations of beauty, guess what? Some people are more beautiful than others. And without equivocation, the God, God's word in Proverbs 31.30 clearly states, charms deceitful and beauty is passing. It doesn't last. It's gonna go away. What is the most important thing? It's right there in Proverbs 31.30. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. But our topic today is trying to define first external beauty. Beauty is flawless. Beauty is young. It passes away. And as we study through the Song of Songs, we can also greatly formulate this theology of beauty and this definition of beauty and that beauty is symmetrical and it's clean. In Song of Songs chapter 4 and verse 2, your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing. That's kind of a weird figure of speech. Oh honey, you're your teeth, they're just like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing. <laughs> Guys, don't use that one. It, it just doesn't, you know, try to, try to freshen it up a little bit in the, for the 21st century, all right? You know? <laughs> the point is that her teeth are clean. You know, cleanliness is next to godliness. You know, that proverb that we've created in our culture. <laughs> There's actually some truth to it. There's some biblical truth to it. God is a God of cleanliness. And this is something that we've even, you know, it's interesting. We teach at a, I teach at a Bible college, and one of the things that the particularly young men have to do on a regular basis is clean their rooms. You know, I can actually go to the Bible and say, you need to do this, and not just your room. Your entire life needs to be ordered. God is a God of beauty, and he wants you to correctly order the cosmos under which he has given you dominion. Order the cosmos. Clean it up. Beauty is clean, and it's symmetrical. You can see that second part of that verse, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. There's not one that's barren. In other words, there's none myth missing. <laughs> that was not intentional, but it just, it just happened. I'm going to get a drink. So beauty is symmetrical, and beauty is clean. Now this one is a little bit, uh, a little bit maybe touchier, but beauty is healthy, and beauty is colorful. And this is me more just trying to push back against our culture's definition of beauty, which is unbiblical. As I see young ladies struggling with anorexia and bulimia and starving themselves, our culture parading these young ladies that look like they're about to die because they've so exalted this ideal of beauty that is unbiblical. In Song of Songs, chapter 6 and 13, why should you look upon the Shulamite as a, upon a dance before two armies? Okay, so she's dancing. 
All right, and then very next, two verses later in Song 7-2, he states that your belly is a heap of wheat. I'll let that sink in. (laughs) Now, she's not some couch potato. She's dancing, but she's also healthy. And God actually designed the female body that it would actually have some fat on it. It's supposed to. That's the design. And the culture is really kind of flipped because in the ancient days, all the ladies were trying to get fat. And the the gaunt girl was considered the unhealthy one. The fat woman was considered um, a sign of opulence and a higher socioeconomic um, status. And a husband would want his wife to be fat because it was was a reflection upon him and his wealth. The whole culture is totally flipped. And this woman, uh, she is healthy. She is healthy. And we see also within the song and within 1 Samuel 16, by the way, nobody mentioned David. David is described as being beautiful, handsome. But in Song 510, it states, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. There's like a redness. There's a color to him. I think that's a reflection of the health of the individual, but also God made this world colorful. And he's made some of our bodies to reflect that color. And it's okay to dress that color up. Oop, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's back that up. But beauty, defining it, is like is, is healthy and it's colorful. So then the final thing that I have to say here is just that beauty in the Bible is objective. There are standards of beauty that God has designed. These are what they are. These are some of what they are. By the way, this is just the beginning. I just gave you like a little bit of a snip on the top of a big, huge iceberg as far as the discussion of beauty here. All I have tried to do is look at the Bible and say this is what beauty is. Most of what we learn about beauty actually comes from general revelation and what we see in this world. You can read secular philosophers even. One uh, that would be a, a, a good one, its title is Beauty. The author is Roger Scruton, and he talks about beauty. And as far as this whole idea of beauty is in the eye of the beholder, where did that idea even come from? It came from an unbiblical worldview, philosophical pluralism where we want to just tell everybody, oh yeah, you're beautiful. Oh yeah, you're beautiful. Everybody's beautiful. Because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And as a result, in an effort to not hurt anybody's feelings, we've taught a false theology. Especially when, when we really know, well, you know what? I'm not as beautiful as that person. That person really is beautiful. So now let's develop a theology. What does the song teach us about beauty? Oh yeah. So the second thing here, taste, however, is subjective and can change. I need to talk about that for just a moment. We have this idea, this ideal of beauty that we've been indoctrinated by. Why is it that you're attracted to a blonde or a brunette or a blue-eyed or a dark skin, a light skin or whatever? I don't care, okay? Where does that come from? I'll tell you where it usually comes from. (laughs) It usually comes from our media and the diet that we are consuming. Our culture has created this idea of beauty and we've bought into it and we haven't thought about it. Actually, what we need to do is we need to change what we like. Tastes can be changed and you can change your taste to like the right thing. But beauty is objective and it transcends cultures. Okay, so with this in mind, let's look at the Song of Songs. We're going to go through our four beauty lessons, which I might stretch into five, okay? 
We're going to go to our four beauty lessons and uh, see what the Song of Songs teaches us about beauty. In Song 1-5, the woman speaks and she says, I am very dark but lovely. The word there for very dark is actually not very dark. The word is actually black. She's black. She's not very dark. She's black. Now, when you think of black, you think, oh, well, maybe she was of African descent or something. In fact, some people say, oh, it says black. She's black. So she must be, you know, an African. She, maybe she's the Queen of Sheba. That's what some people think. But the source of her blackness is described in the next verse. The source of her blackness is the sun. See, she's not really black. What is her appearance? She's very dark. That's right. Her perception of herself, however, is black. And this is, a, this is an issue that women, gener- women have an issue with. And it's not just middle-aged women or older women. It's particularly our younger women. Any kind of a perceived flaw, guess what happens to it? <laughs> they blow it up. And that's what the woman has done here. She's seen this one thing that's a flaw in her body, and she's just made this huge issue of it. It's a perceived flaw. The figure of speech that we would call this would be hyperbole. She's exaggerated uh, this point. She speaks specifically to the daughters of Jerusalem because what are guys most often interested in? The first thing is a young lady's appearance. You know, that's why the Song of Songs talks a lot about that appearance thing. Uh, but he, So here she addresses the young ladies, and she says, I am black but lovely. She doesn't deny that she has some beauty, uh, but she has this perceived flaw that really bugs her. There are two similes that we have here. The tense of Kadar, this would apply to her darkness. The tense of Kadar were black, black, black. The curtains of Solomon is quite likely the description that is lovely. His curtains would have been lovely. So you have this perceived flaw, but then you have this beauty. She is a flawed beauty. And as we continue into the next verse, in verse 6, she states to her husband, do not gaze upon me. And this is an issue that young ladies have, especially newly married young ladies, have. They don't want to be looked at because they see these flaws as just being so big. She states here that I am dark. Again, that's that word for black. Because the sun has looked upon me, she then explains the source of her blackness. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. We see here the um, two uses of the vineyard. She is the literal keeper of a vineyard. She's a vineyard keeper girl. What is this other vineyard? That's her body. That's like her person. What has working in the vineyard done to her? It's flawed her. 
Do we understand that? When our young men, when they're after some, you know, woman that's like flawless, that's beautiful or whatever, do we understand how their affections are looking for the wrong thing? Because what kind of a woman should they really be after? What does the Bible teach that's the kind of a woman that a young man should really be after? Proverbs 31, the excellent woman. And what does she do? Does anybody know? She fears the Lord. She buys a vineyard. Coming from one of the guys that's gone through this with me before. <laughs> In Proverbs 31:16, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. Okay, so she's constructing something. She's working. She's this seamstress and she's making clothing. She's outside under the sun. She's, she's working with her hands. And what's happening to her beauty? It's being flawed. The excellent woman is flawed. And the Song of Songs teaches us that beauty is really not that important. Okay, now that's, I'm going to create a paradox for you a little bit here. But this is an important component of it all. I believe he's, he's intentionally picked up on the theme of the vineyard and the, um, to connect it to Proverbs 31. Um, because the excellent woman, she is taking care of a vineyard. And this is the kind of a woman that you want to find. Okay, continuing into uh, the, uh, in the song. Now, there is a bit of a transition here between verses 6 and 7. Six and seven. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. Okay, so back in verse 6, she's a vineyard keeper. But now we have, she's still speaking and she's talking to her, her shepherd, her shepherd lover. Where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. I'll just kind of give you a little bit of a, a tip here again. Okay, so if you're using, say, like a New King James Bible, one of the things I like about the New King James is that uh, it puts words in italics that aren't actually in the text. And this word's not really there. Okay, where you pasture, where you make it lie down. The verb, it, is not really there either. Now, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in English, so that's why the English translators have supplied those verbs, because something needs to be the object of the pasturing. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Now, as we continue in this text and we see his response, which, by the way, these are the first words that he says in the entire Song of Songs, he then says, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flocks and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. Okay, so his very first words are this rhetorical question. It's like, what's going on here between these two people? She's like, tell me where you're at. And he's like, if you don't know. There's a little innuendo going on here, okay? The pasturing has nothing to do with any kind of sheep. Okay, so we'll just leave that alone. She's propositioning him. That's what she's doing. And he gets the drift, and he playfully banters back at her. 
He describes her then as almost beautiful among women, a very fitting description considering the previous conversation about beauty. What is his estimation of her? Beautiful. And what is this woman? She's a vineyard keeper. And now, what is she in verse 8? And what were the shepherds in the ancient Near Eastern world? You know, who wanted to be a shepherd? Oh, man, I just always wanted to grow up and be a shepherd, said no one ever. Okay, that's kind of like, oh, man, I just want to work at McDonald's when I grow up, you know? That would be the equivalent. When you think through the socioeconomic scale in the ancient Near Eastern world, shepherd was like the bottom. Now, what was the top? That would be the, the king. And what do we see in the development here in the Song of Songs? I'm going to jump ahead and I'll come back to this. But in verse 12, while the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. All of a sudden, boom, now we've got this guy who's the king and she's the queen and we've got this great opulence. What has the author done here, what has Solomon done here in the Song of Songs? He's created these two characters because they're not Solomon, okay? And they're not real characters. They're ideal characters. You have the lowest socioeconomic scale, the poorest person in the land. And then you've got the highest. And this is the point of beauty that I took out. This would be like the fifth lesson if you want to write it in. Beauty is available to anybody. You can choose to enjoy the beauty that God has given you regardless of your socioeconomic position in life, whether you're poor or whether you are rich. So that was the point that I deleted, and I'm like, why did I delete that? Let's make it five again. And so you can just kind of write that one down at the bottom in your con conclusion. Okay, now coming back to verse eight, coming, um, we have, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women. Here he is exalting in his shepherdess girl, who clearly is going to have some kind of flawed beauty. And as we consider our beauty lessons, the second point is that the excellent husband enjoys his wife's beauty. The excellent husband enjoys his wife's beauty. You see, nobody is ugly. Everybody has some kind of beauty. What's the real issue? The real issue is, what are you looking at? The real issue is your eyes. Do you understand that? Your wife has beauty. Can you see it? You need to learn to identify the external beauty of an excellent woman. So I've made this application to singles, and this is what I'm trying to cultivate in my son's lives so that they would understand the value of beauty, that everybody has beauty. It's like, well, why don't, why don't you like so-and-so? Oh, I just am, I'm not attracted to them. Well, what is that? Well, they're just not attractive. Well, well what is that? Can you learn to find that person attractive? As a godly husband... What does the Song of Songs teach you to do? You learn to find your spouse attractive. 
see the beauty in that individual. Now, this is where I could go to the Song of Songs chapter 4, and that's what the husband of the song does. In Song 4, 1 through 7, he then goes through, you know, the whole, you know, use coming up from the washing, and the teeth are all symmetrical, and he uses all these figures of speech that are really weird to us, okay? Don't just say, oh, yes, you're beautiful. What do you need to do, guys? You need to look at her, and you need to be able to see the beauty, and then say, oh, you're beautiful. Man, I love how your eyes sparkle. Boy, your eyes are green like the meadow in the plain or whatever. Okay, I'm using a song. A song's illustration, it probably doesn't work so well, okay? But you come up with something, okay? You create a metaphor that then communicates to your wife that her beauty is something that you like, that you enjoy. And then teaching our young men, beauty is not that important. You need to learn to see the beauty in a godly woman, there's one young man that um, I, I worked through this text with, and he was really struggling because there was this woman that he was interested in, and he just wasn't sure if he should take the next step, and this was his big hang-up. And when I walked him through, you know what the virtuous woman does? She works out in the field. She's working in the vineyard. And she's still beautiful. You just need to change your eyes to what you're looking for. And it's just like, boom, he got it. <laughs> He was valuing the wrong things. He had eaten the philosophy of this world. And he was about to lose a good girl. <laughs> and he got it. This is what we need to instill in our young people. That they would be able to identify the external beauty of an excellent woman. Next, back to the Song of Songs. In verse 9, we have this very odd metaphor. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Honey, you are just like a horse. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work too well. <clears throat> now, a little study of horses would help you out a little bit here, okay? Uh, a mare is a specific kind of a horse. It's a female horse. Now, uh, a chariot is typically pulled by a specific kind of a horse. What kind of a horse is going to be pulling a chariot? Louder. A stallion. And what is a stallion? A male horse. Okay, so you have a male horse and you have a female horse. So Pharaoh's chariots are going to be pulled by a team of male stallions. Stallions are bigger and stronger horses, and so they're going to be able to take the, the, the chariot faster. And it was even a, a, a military tactic in the ancient Near Eastern world where they would take a mare in heat in a battle situation, and they would turn the mare in heat off, loose, into the direction of the enemy's chariots, because guess what happens when a mare in heat gets close to a bunch of stallions? Yeah, I see some giggles out there because you might have some experience with horses and you know how this works, all right? You get a mess, that's what you get. And, and that's why it was a military tactic. But think of the compliment that this gives the woman, okay? What is she essentially saying? It's funny, we were having Bible study this morning, and uh, one of the, the men that was there said, you know, it's kind of like a, a Corvette would be a better illustration, you know? Gets, my, gets your engine revving up. <laughs> Might be a better modern illustration. 
of this truth. That's what this is communicating. Now, this has something to teach us about beauty. And this is a really important part as you consider even your children, particularly your young daughters. We need to have discernment, understanding the power and effects of beauty. We need to have discernment concerning the power and the effects of beauty. This gets into a whole conversation about modesty. Because guess what that beauty does? It excites. We see this multiple times within the Song of Songs. In Song 4-9, You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. In this specific passage, this word for captivated my heart is you have hearted my heart. It's like he sees her and she does something and then what happens to his heart? You know, it starts going crazy. The engine gets revved up. This uh, metaphor here with one jewel of your necklace, is it really a jewel of your necklace? It's more likely he's using the jewel of the necklace as a figure of speech for a wink. And as she winks at him, guess what that has a, what effect that has on him? The power of the eyes and the female eyes. The world knows this. Oh, goodness. They use it all the time in beauty advertisements and so on and so forth. You can study the eyes in the Song of Songs. It's a very interesting study. They're equated with the doves. We communicate through our eyes. This says something. And it can have an effect on a young man. And a woman can use that. She can use that for her own purposes and manipulation and power because she possesses some power over him. And that's how this connects to this whole modesty discussion. Singles typically are, are young ladies. They don't have the discernment to understand the beauty and the power that their bodies have over young men. Or they do understand that power and what they can, their beauty can do. And then guess what? They use it. And they can use it for their own selfish ends. Parents, pastors, and teachers, we need to guide our daughters and our young ladies that they have a proper view of beauty and that they use it for God's glory and not their own self-exaltation or naively for some man's perversion. We see the same metaphor in Song 6-5. Uh, in the case of the Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 9, with the mare and how it excites the man, um, this is one component where in the marriage relationship, guess what? Beauty is something that is important. In fact, in the next two verses, we're going to have some additional theological truths that teach us about the importance of beauty. So this is where I've painted this kind of as a paradox. Is beauty the most important? No. Fearing the Lord is most important. But guess what? You still have this thing called a physical appearance. And, you know, if you're married, your, your husband, you know, he might like it if you adorn that and, and make it look beautiful for his pleasure. And that brings us to our next beauty lesson. Actually, let's return to the Song of Songs. In verse 10, 
He states, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. And this is another instance where the others really just doesn't exist, okay? He continues talking here in verse 11, and he says, we will make you. That's like the couple together, he and she together, will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. Now, why are they doing this? Why are they making this jewelry What's the purpose of that? And this teaches us another biblical theological truth about beauty. And that beauty can be enhanced. You can enhance your beauty for your spouse's pleasure. Enhance your beauty for your spouse's pleasure. This is a biblical theological truth that I would encourage you to seriously think about. Why do you adorn yourself? Why does your single daughter adorn herself? And is that, is that really... I'm not saying that they should stink and be ugly or whatever, okay? But why? Why is it that, we're, that she's putting on the whole beauty suit every single day? And why is it that our married wives never put on the beauty suit? This is something that we need to think about, that we need to talk about. And for our young adults, they need parental pastoral guidance concerning beauty. My daughter is almost seven years old. Almost seven years old. And she made some comment about some spot that she had on her forehead I think from playing or whatever, she had like this red spot and how it was like bothering her. Really? You're six. You do not need to be concerned about your appearance, my little girl. I love you. 13, 14 years old, Instagram, Facebook, the beautiful faces that aren't even real half the time that bombard our daughters when they see those women and the power that they possess, and they desire that. They don't need that. They don't want that. There is freedom in understanding God's theology of beauty. Beauty is a very powerful force. Spouses, enhance your beauty for your spouse's pleasure. Parents, guide your children through these decisions. Now, I'll just give you a quick little bit. If there is an area of beauty that is something that's like a corruption from the fall, then I think that's a valid thing that you could enhance somebody's beauty. So, for example, there was this one young couple. They were engaged and they were going to get married. And the young lady had a blemish. It was on her face. He didn't care. He had a proper view of emotions or of beauty. And he was going to marry her anyway. But out of love for her husband, that mark disappeared. Like a couple months before they got married. Is that okay? Certainly. I think so. I think the Song of Songs teaches, you know what? Beautify yourself for your spouse's pleasure. Don't beautify yourself for your own self-exaltation. Let's enjoy beauty the way that God designed it. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this study that we were able to do on beauty. Give us wisdom as we seek to guide our daughters and um, 
and the young ladies in our churches concerning self-image and appearance. Lord, this is a very difficult issue uh, that's very um, emotionally charged. And the situations and circumstances are going to be different. There are so many heart issues that are truly at play uh, with these young ladies. And I pray for the pastors that are here, for the fathers that are here, for the Christian mentors and, that are here. Uh, I pray that our young ladies would be free from our culture's idolization of beauty. And Lord, I pray for our young men that they would have a proper view of beauty, that they would learn to see the beauty in a woman of virtue. Help us as godly men to love our wives and enjoy the beauty which you have blessed them with. And I pray for our wives that they would not compare themselves with the faces and fakes of this world, but that they would thank you for the beauty that you have given and use it as a means of pleasing their husbands. May we exemplify a different worldview. Give us biblical eyes, I pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.